Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, a very cool conversation. We get a chance to talk with Amy Dresner, journalist, author, former comedian. She really gives people a lot of hope. Her book, My Fair Junkie, was released about four years ago, and it was released to critical acclaim. She calls it a slow burn as the numbers have continued to go up. She doesn't talk about sales, but she sold a shitload of books. She also did a shitload of uh, meth, and she talks about that in her book. And the reason I can chuckle is because she's sober today, and she's hilarious. The way that she uses her humor to illuminate those dark moments and give people hope, like I talked about earlier, is is a magical thing. And even now, she doesn't sugarcoat it. She says herself, it's not all unicorns and rainbows being sober. And she's very vulnerable and relatable, and she talks about real-life stuff. Her podcast, Rehab Confidential, is awesome. She's just very funny and very cool and very likable. So enjoy this. It's over an hour, and uh, after the hour, we actually ended up talking for like 25 minutes, just about sobriety and life. This is the kind of person we're talking about. She had to postpone last week because her cat has liver problems. Uh, Her cat is doing better, and Amy Dresner is joining us now on The Payoff. But first, Kevin Souza. What's up? It's Pete Souza. I know. The can only, I swear or not? Yes, you can swear. You're eight and a half years sober. I mean, your story is amazing. I think one of the reasons that you're so attractive to people in sobriety is your vulnerability. Because people are vulnerable with the sponsor or, or one-on-one with another alcoholic or in a meeting. But you're you're totally out. You're raw and you're out there. And I think you kind of, other people are able to open up. Uh, after listening to you or, or reading yeah, you? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I get a lot of private messages that are very, very intimate where they're just like, oh my God, thank you. Like, I thought I was alone and you, you made me feel less ashamed and like, uh, you know, and they tell me their story and like, you know, even last night, like, you know, a lot of people shared before I got up and they were talking about shame and relapse and I, so I addressed that right on before I started, you know, about that. And so, I think that a lot of people are very invested in looking good or, and it's like, I don't really see the point in that. So I, I, I don't, I didn't, I wasn't invested in looking good in, in, if you're writing an addiction memoir and you're trying to look good, you're just not being honest enough. I don't know what to say, like for real. Yeah. And so I think that the power of being vulnerable, like I'll say something that I think is like completely my own weird horrible thought or something weird I do and so many people are like oh my god me too like get out of my head and it's like what it's really taught me is that the power of connection is a so important and and b like we're not unique from each other like our all we have the same fears and the same feelings and the same neuroses and the same you know what I mean like it's like you know the more personal it is the more universal it is really People are always like, how do you read my mind? And it's like, you know, 
I mean, that's the one thing I can say is like, like your your things are not that unique. And although that that's kind of like a blow to us because we want to be like special snowflake, at the same time, it's like, well, maybe I can get past it because this person got past it. Did you have? I don't know. I just I have no filter. I don't. I don't have a filter. And so people either really like me or they really don't. Did, now, did you all? Did you always have? No filter or did, cause a lot of yeah. times like, are you always did? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then I'm sure that like brain damage from crystal meth, you know, in the form of epilepsy and like head injuries didn't exactly help that. Yeah. I mean, so you, and you have the epilepsy of, as a result of long-term crystal meth use. Let's go back to just knowing your story a little bit. You grew up in Bel Air. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Beverly Hills. Like, I mean, Bel Air sounds, yeah. I mean, like I grew, I was born in Bel Air, but it's like, okay. you know, I was, I went to, you know, you know, private uniform schools. I was like, you know, upper middle class. I wasn't rich, rich. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I wasn't crazy rich. And it's like, but definitely my dad was in the movie industry and, you know, I had a nice life and I didn't, you know, I was very spoiled. You were a good kid. But I was a really, yeah, I was a super straight A student. I was a really good girl. Like I didn't, you know, um, I was a really good kid and, uh, I didn't really get into any trouble until sort of, I mean, college is when I kind of cracked up a little bit. I started to have, you know, like I had a nervous breakdown and that's when I started drinking. And then after college, I really fell apart. And then that was the beginning of sort of like a 20 year battle with depression and drugs and alcohol. You went to Emerson, which is in Massachusetts, right? I'm from, I'm from from Philly. Okay. Oh, okay. I went yeah. to Santa Cruz for my first year. And oh, okay. I was like, There's too many hippies and drug addicts here, and like, of course, now I then I became like a hippie and a drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I don't know everything that you judge, you become. That's been my experience in life. I'm like, oh my god, blah blah blah, you know. And then the universe was like, oh really? You think you're you're so far from that here? And I was like, ooh. So I'm very careful what I judge, and I just have a lot of compassion because everything that I thought could never happen to someone like me happened to me. I've heard you say that. It's like, you know, you never know. And I've been, I've been sharing that. You fucking never know. Right under the right or wrong circumstances, you could be that person. You just don't, you know, if you had that biology, if you were in that circumstance, if you, you know, and it's like, I don't know. That was just what, what, what my experiences taught me. I mean, I really, really had what they call a low bottom. It was pretty bad. Did you feel like you were different growing up? Yeah, I felt different at nine. At nine? weird. At nine years old, I was like a little bit depressive and like weird and sort of outside of myself and didn't feel like I fit in. And, you know, I was fine. I was like, okay, popular, but I was weird already. I was like, I wore like all, my mother was a designer. So she'd go to Europe and she would dress me in all kinds of weird shit. And so like there was one year, this was like fourth or fifth grade where I only wore army green and people called me army Dresner. And then there was another, like at another period where like I wore like bow ties and vests. And people were like, you're weird, you know? And it was like, but mostly I felt sort of like outside of myself and a sort of a sadness. Like I felt a hole inside of myself. Like at nine, I can remember feeling like that. Just like, I don't feel like other people seem on the outside. Like they seem like carefree and happy. And, you know, even in pictures, you can see like everyone's smiling and I'm not smiling. I'm already like self-conscious and don't like myself and up and, and tightly wound and, you know, uncomfortable in my skin. You didn't drink at all in high school. Is that right? No, no. My father made a bet with me. Well, I was scared of it. I was scared of it. And uh, my father made it. And I was, uh, you know, the gang I was in, 
so the group of girls that I hung out with in high school were all kind of goody two shoes. So, uh, but my father made a bet with me that I would drink or smoke or do drugs before I was 18. And if I didn't, he'd give me a thousand dollars. And I always make this terrible joke that that's how Jews raise each other. We just bribe <laughs> each other. So I waited, you know, so I waited, I waited another year. I waited until I was 19. And then, you know, I was in college and I was like a virgin you know, I think that as alcoholics and addicts that we're, you know, we're really bad at moderation. We're great at extremism. You know, it's like we're either like, you know, and I say this all the time, we're like smoking meth and like fucking strangers or we're like vegan and like celibate <laughs> and like, you know, doing CrossFit. You know what I mean? Like we can't sort of get in that middle ground. And so I was like, I'm so pure and I've never drank and I've never fucked anyone. And everyone's like, ew. And I was like, oh. So then I kind of went the other way and I lost my virginity and I started drinking and you know, it was, it was college. It didn't look that suspect yet. Did you feel like a hole, that hole in your soul was filled when you, when you started to drink? I mean, I know crystal meth was kind of like your thing, but. No, I never felt that way with booze. Booze made me extremely out of control and, um, I would black out like immediately. So I didn't really like that. And it made me really obnoxious and I'm pretty obnoxious to start with made me very very sexual and kind of violent and so i didn't i didn't it wasn't my go-to i crystal was the thing that fucked for me made that click where i was like oh i feel normal this is what i need to be on the planet and any, any other kind of speed in your story like before crystal meth or did you go right like how? no i went straight to crystal later i i, I fucked around with adderall and and um Ritalin, but I don't, that didn't do it for me. And then, you know, later I got into shooting Coke, which also helped me feel like, like emotionally kind of settled, which is really scary. My friends would know. One guy said, I know when you're using because you're emotionally controlled and you seem like more together. I'm like, that's terrifying. And then that's an addict too. Yeah, of course. Like I'm better when I'm loaded. Yeah. What was your first experience like with, with crystal meth? Um, I was, 24 and I was waitressing at this Ethiopian restaurant and I had been up all night doing Molly with this like young pierced couple and Molly didn't even really work on me ecstasy because I was on so many fucking psych drugs so it was like you know I just don't have enough dopamine for it to work <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> for but, people just to paint a picture what year is this like around like what time 93 okay 90, like you know I'm old man so uh, <laughs> you don't look it um uh, I know that's, well, that's a miracle. That's just genetics. I should look like an apple doll. Um, so I, I, I was tired and I didn't know how to get through my shift. I'd been up all night with this couple. And then, uh, this neighbor was like, Hey, try some of this. And it was like this pink powder. And I was like, I didn't even ask what it was. I was like, he's like, this will help you get through your shift. And I was like, cool. And I snorted it and I didn't like it. I thought it was, I felt really like, ah, like really grindy and like I was going to have a, like I was plugged into a electrical outlet. I was like, ah, like it was way too much for me. But the second time I did it, which is so weird. Like if you tried something once, why would, and you didn't like it, why would you even try it a second time? It's but as simple again, as the it. first time I drank, I threw up and then I couldn't wait to do it again. It's like, what? Right, what yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And the second time I did it, something clicked and I was like, oh my God, I feel whole. I feel normal. I feel like I can be on the planet. I feel pretty. I, I'm, I'm energetic. I don't have depression. I'm creative. Like this is, yeah, this is my medicine. Are you smoking it or are you snorting it? Like how are you? How are I was, you? I was snorting it. Then later I started to eat it and, and smoke it. 
You started to do it when you were wait- waitressing. Were you writing at all or anything? I was, uh, no. So then I got, I got fired from that job. And then I was working for a quadriplegic guy as his like caretaker. I ended up, um, and that story's in the book. And it's actually really moving because it's like no one would have thought that I would have done something like that being like a Beverly Hills brat. But I was like literally had to bathe him and dress him. And he was paralyzed from the chest down. It was pretty intense nursing work that I had no training for but he liked me and thought it was funny and so he hired me and i learned to do it what was your um, you're, you're a very funny person we'll, we'll get to like your you know you did stand-up oh, and comedy I spoken word then i spoken word was very cool then it's like now everyone's like oh god but then it was very very cool and so i was doing spoken word in all the clubs and stuff like that and like were you in la or so. san francisco i was in san francisco and then how do you, how does it evolve? It just, I bottom out. I get an infection in my face. My whole face blows up and I finally tell my parents, they had no idea what was going on and they come and get me and they're like, oh my fucking Christ. Like what's going on? Our kid is a drug addict. Like what? Like, it's, it's, it's kind of a late bloomer. You know what I mean? It was like, they were like, what is happening? So they moved me back to LA thinking that, you know, well, she's never been a drug addict in LA and she won't, so she won't be a drug addict there. <laughs> We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now, wherever books are sold. So, you know, um, that didn't work. Did you go to meetings at all or anything? Did you try to get any sort of like, like, like I guess I was like... not interested. I didn't want to. I okay. mean, I, I stopped doing Crystal for a couple months, but I was drinking really heavily. And then I relapsed on the crystal and then I had a seizure in a market and I was like, all right, you know, and this was a couple of years. What happens, what happens with the seizure? Like, how does that, how does that play out? So, well, I, you know, this was after really like doing the tweaker lifestyle, like staying up for 17 days and writing a new Bible and like really fucking just going at it, dumpster diving and having like, like hanging out with people I had no business hanging out with. Like really, I was super naive and you know, I mean, it's funny because you're sober now, right? But like you talk about, that is a dark scene. Like that, it's really dark. It's really dark. It's and this was not now where it's more prevalent. This was, you know, the '90s in LA, and it was really fucking dark. And it's not like, and I wasn't in the gay scene, which is not quite as dark. This was the straight crystal scene, and it's all, it's really, really dark. And it's a lot of crime. And I was really out of my element. It was like, you know, I was dealing with like, you know, people who had been in prison, Mexican cartel members, you know. I love the guys, story, but I don't love the story, homeless. but you, you got people in your house and, and they're asking you if you could sell a gun or, or if you know. Oh, anybody. yeah. They were like, hey, man, you know, you, you know, anyone who wants to buy this. And I was like, it was like this pipe looking thing. I had no idea what the fuck it was. And I was like, what, what is that? And he goes, oh, it's a silencer, man. And I was like, oh, 
bump, you know? And I go, oh, actually, I played off really cool. I was like, yeah, man, no one comes to mind right away, but let me let me ask around. And I was like, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? Like, I was so out of my elephant. And so I, I put on this really tough girl attitude to just kind of survive and make people not fuck with me. You, you stopped with the crystal. You start to drink a lot. And then do you pick back oh, up? I stop with the crystal. I have a seizure and I go into my first treatment uh, facility. And that's where I'm introduced to like recovery. And I was like, ew. And I went to sober living and I was like, and then I stayed clean for about a year. And I just thought, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a drug addict. And I tried to drink and that didn't work out well at all. And so then I just stayed you know, um, sober on my own for about seven years. No meetings, nothing like just no nothing. Yeah, all on my own. Explain to people that don't know what 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 that's like uh, when you're when you're just I mean it, dry. Um, I mean, I know people that can do it. For me, I was living in Europe. I was my my life was very small. Um, I still felt very suicidal. Uh, I had no tools. I didn't grow. I wasn't changing. Um, I didn't change, you know what I mean? So then when I relapsed, um, it was exactly the same and it just picked up right where it lay off, let off. And it was, you know, immediately as gnarly as ever. Now, were you, so, what were your relationships like? Yeah, I had this girl I was living with, with my business partner. And then, you know, I didn't really, you know, I didn't, it was like work and just like, and then I think I fell in love and he broke my heart. And then I ended up like opening up a bottle of wine and, splitting my wrist or something really dramatic and borderline-y, you know? Yeah, I mean, the book is, is absolutely, it's intense. Um, yeah, it's really intense. People are like, if I didn't know you were okay, like, I don't know that I could read this. But it's like, that's why I tried to make it funny. Well, also, the humor is what got me through it. I was just like, if I don't see the humor in this, I'm not going to survive this. So when did you have that, like, gift of desperation where you were, where you had your first, like, So long- many times. Come <laughs> on. I mean, I had... I had had years of sobriety and then would relapse and then I had years of sobriety and would relapse. So that's, you know, um, this is the longest I've ever had. And, uh, this is a different sobriety than I've ever had. I have about eight and a half years now. And, um, but you know, I mean, the gift of sobriety, the gift of desperation came truly, you know, not from like having seizures from shooting up Coke or anything like that. It came from losing everything. You know, from trying to, you know, I brand, I, I, I pulled a knife on my ex husband when I was high on Oxycontin and kind of drunk on Four Loco or something. And, um, I got arrested for felony domestic violence and I went to jail and it was, you know, I was left penniless in a psych ward and I had a nervous breakdown and, uh, you know, went through a divorce and a criminal trial and it was fucking bad. And I was 42 years old and I had nothing. And so except a fucking record and I went on medical disability and I had to do community labor. And what was the community labor like for somebody sleeping. like you? Uh, it was a rude awakening, man. You know, like I remember, you know, when I first went to sign up, they were like, I thought I was going to get some sweet gig, like folding shirts at like a fucking thrift store or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and I was like, that was great. And they were like, no, for your offense, you know, you can only do hard labor. And I was like, yeah, I'm not really good at that. Like hard labor in the, you know, fucking hot sun thing. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm skinny desert Jew who hasn't worked out and I'm, <laughs> you know, lazy. And she was like, too fucking bad. So, like, you know, I showed up at the first day, and I was like, you know, fuck, these people are criminals. It was a Hollywood beautification team, and I was like, what the fuck, you know? And uh, it was me and 40 fucking, you know, Hispanic dudes, 
And I was just like, oh, shit. And they're all in their hoodies. And I was like, hi. No one, like, says anything. And then someone comes up to me, and they're like, what you here for, Weta? Hmm? I'm here for a DUI. What you here for? And I was like, oh, fuck. And I said, well, I'm here for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. They're like, oh, shit. You know, so immediately they were like, she is a crazy white bitch. And um, no one fucked with me because I was one of the only people there for assault and I had more time than anybody else. And that's when I really got it. I was like, you're the criminal dummy. Yeah, it's funny. And, like uh, when you're, you're, I had this experience too. Like you're living in a, in a halfway house and there's a guy that's, you know, talking about PCP. It seems like he's still on PCP, right? Another guy thinks he's a rapper and, 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 and you're, you're comparing yourself out, but you're in, you're in the group. I'm like, shit, I'm, you know, at some point I yeah, got, I, well, that was my experience, the psych ward, you know what I mean? And someone called me out on it, you know, I'm making fun of everyone in the psych ward, you know, and someone said to me, you know, you're, you're, you're making fun of us and laughing at us, but you're here too. And I was like, Oh my God. You know, I was a dick when I was using, you know, I was really a dick and I was really, I was quite mentally ill and I was really entitled and I wasn't, you know, I look back and, you know, it's like, I mean, my editor, when I was writing the book was like, wanted to take out some stuff to make me seem nicer, but I really wanted to be accurate because I don't, I don't know that anyone's angelic when they're mentally ill and using, we're assholes, you know, and, uh, cause if we weren't assholes and destroying everything, why would we get sober? Yeah. It's like, there's no arc. If you're fucking nice, if you look great, there's no, I mean, I wanted to show people the change and that book ended at three years. And the second book is going to start where that book ended and, and come up to present time. I mean, a lot has changed in from three to eight and a half years of sobriety. What is the number one thing that moved you to write the second book? People want it. <laughs> they want to know what happened. They're like, what the fuck happened? They're like, we need more Amy. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and you had a happily ever after with, with a guy in oh, that well, book. That's over. That's over. Yeah. That was a rude awakening. I mean, yeah, it was. But I've heard um, you talk about getting through that. See that to me, that's the magic of sobriety. And I know we're jumping all over, but you, you have this heartbreak, which guess what? Like, well, that's welcome to real life, right? You, you, of course. You, well, that's the book. That's the book. The book is, and I don't think it's been written is, you know, life and sobriety. And it's not fucking rainbows and unicorns and miracles and magic. It's, it's real life. My mom got dementia. My dad got cancer. I got my heart fucking shattered. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm also having to like grow the fuck up. Like I had been using for 20 years. And people were taking care of me and start, now I'm middle age and I don't know how to do anything. Yeah. I'm really developmentally delayed. I don't know how to do my taxes. I don't know how to have a relationship. I don't know how to fucking change when I should change my oil. Like I'm a child. I'm, I'm in, I'm literally 20 years old inside and no one talks about that, you know, and all the missed opportunities and like, and having to really catch up and also, but then all of a sudden I'm my mom's power of attorney. And I'm like, I, I don't even know how to be my own fucking power. Wait, wait, what? You know what I mean? And all this responsibility is heaped on me. And so I want to talk about, you know, there's so many addiction memoirs, but there's not that many sobriety memoirs. And it's like, you know, a lot of people feel like they're doing it wrong if they're not fucking happy and everything's not perfect. And I just want to say that's just not true. Yeah. Like life continues to happen. The fucking miracle is that you don't fucking pick up. That's it. You know what I mean? And you have tools to get through really, really hard stuff. But life doesn't stop because you get sober. People still die, you know, taxes, you know, you still get sick. I had a hand surgery, yeah. heartbreak. Like life continues, man. And it's like you got to handle it. 
well, and you can't check out. Here you are, you're this attractive crystal meth addict female who is in, who's, who's hold on hold on who's who's in who's going to aa you're working 12 steps in, the, in that program now some certain people that don't you know deal with addiction they don't get that you know like how, how does how does that work well when i was first introduced to aa um they that was when i was 24 so that was you know fucking years and years ago did you have a good experience or did you compare no, yourself I had a right horrible out? Experience. Yeah, they were. They yelled at me if I wasn't an alcoholic and identified that I shouldn't belong there. But now, you know, in LA, everyone's cross addicted. And by the time I ended up in, you know, really working a program and getting back in a treatment, back in the program, I had abused alcohol enough to fucking, you know, know that I was I was an alcoholic as well. I'm in everything. Like I'm a sex addict. I'm a love addict. I'm a nicotine addict. Like whatever will change my feelings. I will abuse it. It's gnarly. I mean, I think there's a spectrum of addiction and some people are like, I can blah, blah. I can't, none of it. If it changes my feelings, man, it's, it's over. I'm like five days off the drool again. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I just, I will abuse anything that changes my feelings. And it's really hard because it makes the road very fucking narrow. It's funny though, right? It's, it's something that you said, you're not that unique in a sense that like I, I have, as an addict, I'm a consumer. Like I'll be sitting there watching a TV show and if I'm eating ice cream, it becomes the best fucking TV show I've ever seen. And then I, the ice cream's gone and I'm like, this is horse shit. I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's what happens though. I mean, and, I, and now I'm in tune with it. Like I, I, I know my brain or my, my addict personality well enough. I, I know that just don't watch anything while you're eating it. Or, or if you do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, there's gonna, you know, there's gonna be smoke and mirrors. Well, you had a well, gr- yeah. I'm, go ahead. You're gone. No, no, go ahead. No, I mean, I've been murder shows. Yeah. I fucking, you know what I mean? Like, I'll just like anything. It's like, you know, if a little is good, you know, a, a more is better. And it's just, it's really hard to, you know, stay in that sort of moderate place. But yeah, the other reason I'm writing the book is because I don't want to be a one book wonder. And because um, you are a writer. Yeah, I mean, I, and I'm not writing for magazines. I was a writer before I was a drug addict. I'm not someone who just was like, hey, yeah. I've got a cool story. I'm going to be a writer. Like, I was a writer when I was 13 years old. You know what I mean? I was, I've was i been a writer, and my father was a writer, and I wrote for magazines in college, and I've been a writer a long time. And I was, you know, writing all this shit down as it was happening, hoping to write, to one day put it in a book. So that's why all the stuff is so detailed is because I was writing it down as it was happening. Yeah. And, and, and how much of it did you write when you were, when you were like fucked up because, and, and did you glamorize that? Like the Hemingway type stuff, like people. None of it. I wrote none of it when I was fucked up. Okay. None of the stuff that's in the book was, was, was written when I was fucked up. Did you have notes I mean, that you leaned on from that? article was from, was from six articles. I wrote for the fix a long time. And, um, so nothing was written. I never wrote anything that was fucked up. I have a whole book I wrote when I was fucked up. I won't even look at it. Really? But you have it? Yeah. It's yeah, when I was on the crystal and I have another thing that I wrote when I was shooting Coke and it was like a folder that's like on some hard drive and it just creeps me the fuck out because you think that shit's brilliant when you're doing it. Sure. You're like, yes, you know, and then you read it later and you're like, oh my God. But you know, just to, to be honest, Freud did all his best shit when he was shooting Coke. When he stopped shooting Coke, he didn't really write ever again. But you talk about that that's kind of bullshit, right? Like the sober, like, like you started to do stand up comedy when you got sober. Correct. I started doing stand up at 39 and, um, I never, you know, I think I did stand up once or twice on Oxy after I got a shoulder injury and it was immediately obvious that I was 
not in tune with the audience and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to work. And How was that experience? Was like, like to, because I would think there's a lot of fear in that. Actually, I know because I got, it's terrifying. I got, oh my yeah. God, it's totally terrifying. And it's like, um, that's why a lot of people like to, you know, have a drink before they go on stage, but all the pros don't usually drink till after, you know, because yeah. you want to be really clear. You want to be in tune with your fucking audience. But, you know, um, yeah, the nerves, I was always terrified. No one could tell, but I was terrified every time I performed. And I went on tour and everything, and it was like I always was scared. And that's one of the reasons I stopped. I was just sick of fucking being scared all the time. But, like, Barbara Streisand supposedly has horrible stage fright and throws up every time before she goes on stage her whole life. That's just um, a, it's such a, it's such a grind, I would have to assume. It, yeah, and it's a young person's game. I mean, you know, you don't want to be at a fucking, you know, I was, then I got married and it's like, I don't want to be around people that are fucking doing coke and like, like baked out of their brains at like two in the morning waiting to do a fucking four minute set, you know, when I'm married and in my 40s. I just was like, ah, I don't have the energy, man. You know what I mean? It's just like, so it's like, I think it's a young person's game and you've got to really, really fucking want it. And then when I got arrested, my whole life fucking exploded, you know. Well, doing, you know, a tight 10 at this comedy store wasn't at the top of my list. I was like, I <laughs> need to, I'm going to die or go to jail and, or be homeless. Like I need to fucking get sober and get my shit together. So, so for people that don't know the timeline goes, you get sober, you go on tour and then you're, you're, you have a, sol- a shoulder surgery, right? You're taking oxys and then you kind of lose yeah, it. Yeah, I had a shoulder injury. It wasn't even a surgery and okay. I had, yeah, they gave me oxy and I relapsed. But I had, you know, yeah. So and it was I, mean, I just had a surgery and they gave me Percocet and I was fine. My fucking sober friends doled them out over the time. And, you know, there was not a problem at all. You have a great way, and I forget it right now, but you have a great way to describe like the 12 steps, like exactly what they are. I forget kind of like. Are you confusing me with Russell Brand? No, 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 no. You have, it's a, it's like a one liner, but basically. Oh, it's, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what it is. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's writing, it's acting yourself in a right action. That's really what it is. It's mindfulness. It's meditation. It's fucking, it's, that's really kind of what it is, you know, added with a little bit of, you know, some moral inventory and some amends and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, so you don't have to believe in, you know, sky daddy to fucking be down with it. It works. I mean, the thing with, what I have found with, um, and I'm down with whatever works for you. I'm not like a fucking like, you know, like I support harm reduction. I support like if you stop shooting dope and want to smoke pot and you can live a, your life that way, fucking right on. You know yeah. what I mean? If you get sober, fucking, you know, uh, doing yoga, excellent. Like, I mean, whatever works for you. I tried everything and the only thing that worked for me was AA. And it's like I did everything. I mean, shaman, biofeedback, herbology fucking i had an exorcism i mean every type of psychiatry every type of therapy i did rebirthing hey i'm in la you know what i mean (laughs) like i did all that shit and it's like nothing fucking would work long term so i that's i i mean i i needed like a moral compass i still call my sponsor and i'm like i don't know how to handle this i don't know how what to do you know but what I, i i talk about is you know i worked i had a job as an editor for this um advice a science based love advice columnist named Amy Alcon and um what's it called her name is Amy Alcon and I think it's called it was called the advice the goddess fucking the advice goddess or some shit I don't know okay my brain is so shot but anyway I worked for her for about six years and what I learned a lot about um science 
And what I learned is that, you know, there's something called bidirectionality and neuroplasticity, which is basically if you take a contrary, if you take an action over and over and over and over again, you're going to create a new neural pathway in your brain that becomes your default. And so AA has a lot of science in it. So contrary action, fake it till you make it and act yourself into right thinking. Like that's actually neuroscience. Like if you take contrary action over and over and over again, you are carving out a new pathway in your brain that eventually you are that person. You don't have to fucking pretend to be that person. You are that person. Yeah. But in the beginning, you have to fucking pretend. And that was the big thing that kept me getting loaded was I didn't want to have to take care of myself. I was a fucking entitled brat. I was baby. I was selfish. And I also was listening too much to my feelings. I don't feel like it. I don't want to do that. You know, and what I real, you know, I had a sponsor tell me, you know, no, you don't have to be a good person. You just have to act like one. No one gives, no one knows the difference. (laughs) And I was like, oh shit. You know, because, you know, you're judging yourself on your intentions, but the world is judging you on your actions. So I was like, oh, well, fuck. Okay, well, I'm going to start to be the person. I'm going to start to act like the person I want to be. And eventually you you become that person. How how often do you you go to meetings now? I know, like, L.A. is just kind of starting to open up, but are you? I went, I spoke last night in a in a in-person meeting um and hopefully didn't get the delta variant i don't know a lot of people <laughs> hugged me after and i was like ah you know yeah they were like that was awesome and so i was like now i'm gonna be ill forever great um uh i was doing online stuff i mean i there i went through a period when you're you know when you're in sobriety for a while you get burnt with shit because we're 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 novelty seekers yeah we like stuff that's new that's exciting to us you know, and so I, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I went, there was a period where I wasn't going to meetings at all. And I called myself out and my sponsor was like, I go, I just don't want to. And he goes, I don't give a fuck if you want to. Did I ever ask you if you fucking had a desire? Like, I don't give a shit. Like this fucking, you know, program's giving you your life and so much like, you know, that this is garbage behavior. And th- that's the magic though, calling your sponsor. I mean, that's, that's why the program works in a sense. You, you call somebody who's not going to blow smoke up your ass, tell you what you need to hear. And you, you yeah, he you called like, them. So you're garbage. Yeah. He was just like, uh, you know, I'll see you at this fucking meeting. I'm like, well, you know, I had hand surgery, so I can't do my hair and I look really bad. He goes, Oh, so it's vanity. Even more reason. Put your camera on. I was like, fuck me. <laughs> Yeah, and I lead a meeting at Laura McCallan, the luckiest club, which is non-denominational. There's some people that are in AA or have been in AA. There's some people that have never been in AA. And I, you know, bring in speakers mostly from AA. And I also get to do topics. And it's like 200 plus people. And um, it's awesome. It's Uh, awesome. And it's a really loving, loving environment. And um, it's cool, you know. I mean. You know, relationships and sobriety, I think, are just such an interesting it's such an interesting field to, to try to navigate. I mean, because for so long I'm pouring alcohol and drugs on every single feeling I have. And then right. I, and then I get sober and I'm in a relationship and it's like, okay, is this real? Is this a rush or, you know, what am I after here? How, how, have you, yeah, how have you found yourself able to grow through that? Well, that was the whole thing is that I really ended up in, in, in romantic uh, type of romantic counseling with someone who, you know, because I saw myself, you know, I saw the addiction part, you know, um, and so I took a break. I really, I withdrew. I also was so heartbroken. I was just like, fuck dating and men and just like fucking withdrew. You know what I mean? How long and, did you withdraw uh, from? Like, how long did you? Did I'm you... still withdrawn. I mean, <laughs> I've, been, I've been sober for like five years. And I mean, I had like one 
experience. I went on one date and I was like, you know, like how it's a coffee date during the day. Like how out of control can it be? Right. I, you know, I hadn't like had sex in like two and a half years. I'm like, this will be fine. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's fucking Starbucks. It'll be fine. Yeah. I end up like in the car where I end up in the car fooling around and like just totally out of control. And I was like, okay, so that didn't work. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, I was like, wow, that my old behavior is right there. Like my love addiction and my sex addiction, bam. And I got immediately obsessed with this person and he wasn't available. And so then I was like, okay, I need to take a break and step back and really look at why I'm picking the un- emotionally unavailable people that I am picking. And is it a self-esteem thing? Is it a childhood trauma thing? And that's what I'm doing now is like working on boundaries and communication and my attachment style and my childhood trauma and all the fun bullshit that you have to work on when you get sober. Like, you know, people are like, you got sober. Yay. It's like, just that's when the work starts. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, the drugs and alcohol were my fucking solution. So now I pull that away and I got to feel all my feelings. And then I'm like, oh, I'm all fucked up in all these different areas. Where do you find you in the work? What, what part of the work do you find your biggest, I guess, relief in or what, what gives you the energy, what keeps you coming back? Helping people. It's such a rush to fucking be, have people just like to be able to be of service. And it's so weird to say that. And I, you know, I was so selfish and I never cave, cared. And like when people write me like, Oh my God, like things about the book or whatever, I heard you speak and it changed my, you know, like I just cry because I was the person who was going to die. You know what I mean? I was the person who literally was like, everyone's like, she's crazy and she's a chronic relapser and that bitch is going to die. And now, you know, you become, you know, you're the pariah and then you become sort of a warning and then you become an example, which is weird, you know, really weird. And so I get very uncomfortable when people like put me on a pedestal. But I'm just a fucking junkie that wrote a book. Don't, you know what I mean? So, but get, they get very weirded out when I like write them back. Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm so glad. Like, you know, cause it's like, I'm just someone who wrote a book and it means uh, to me, I want people to feel seen and heard. And I think it's a big deal. I never reached out to any writers that I loved. I didn't write out to reach out and write a uh, note to Augustin Burroughs and be like, I love your shit, man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. I think that takes some fucking balls. And so they like fangirl out and freak out when I write them back. And it means a lot that I took the time to acknowledge and say thank you because I wrote that book to help people. It certainly didn't buy me a fucking Tesla in a mansion. You know what I mean? Like I wrote it to help people. I was like, I'm going to be as honest as I can. And maybe just maybe the book might help someone or it might help someone understand their brother or sister or mother or father's addiction. Like maybe they'll understand it. And that's exactly what it did. And so I felt like mission accomplished. And so the second book is, you know, different, which is, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of life in sobriety. And they're not like what you think. They're not like, Oh my God, I feel uncomfortable. Like being at a bar, not drinking. Like that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about like, like financial fucking like baggage, you know, not really, you know, like I, I tried to connect with my high school friends and they're all married and lawyers and kids and big houses. And I'm, they're like, what, what have you been doing? I'm like, well, I got a felony. And uh, <laughs> I was an intravenous drug user. No, no children. You know, like, I mean, I just, you know, living in a one bedroom with my cat. Yep. Things are good. You know, it's like, so got a 2012 croissant. Yep. Fucking balling. 
And, uh, you know, so I But that's real uh, life. I mean, Amy, that's what pe- that's why you talk to your you, you are sharing with the world what people talk to their sponsors about. I know. I know. Well, I don't I, just, I don't who cares about looking good? Like, I don't get it. I mean, I mean, I don't get I mean, I'm not going to say like, I don't fucking make sure I try and make sure like, sure, I look good in the fucking picture, you know, and sometimes I'll put a little filtery thing on it, but I don't filter it out so much that, you know, you can't, like, if I went missing, you wouldn't identify me, you know what I mean? Like, but it's like, and I've also posted pictures where I'm like, here, this is 51 motherfuckers with no makeup and no filter, fucking enjoy, you know, it's like, or whatever. Um, I don't understand, I think that there's so much division and we feel so isolated in real life that why not be honest so people can feel connected? We're all having the same human experience. And that's what makes it bearable when you know someone else is going through it or has been through it or you're not alone. And then you don't feel crazy and broken. Well, and I love, you You know, you talk about, I've heard you talk about um, when you, you were with a guy and, you know, you have this this sordid past or whatever the, you want to call it, like we all do. And, you know, he tells his family, oh, yeah, you know, she had some some stuff. And you're like, well, yeah, some stuff. And it's like. Yeah, yeah. And there's shame wrapped up in that. And and, and the moment. Yeah, you, he never told them what I did. He never told them what I did, what had really happened. And I mean, I mean, even last night when I was at the meeting, there's this really hot guy next to me talking to me, flirting with me. And I was like. And then I got up there and when he found out I was 185 years old and then I tried to stab my ex, he was like, fucking like, that was the end of that. He was like, yeah. I was like, oh, that, that was the end. Okay. And that's in a meeting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. How are you, know. when you go on dates, are you, how much? Like, I'm not dating right now. I'm I bet if you, if my, you did, I'm doing, okay. I'm doing, I, you know, I usually try and date in the program. I mean, my export last boyfriend was a normie and that was interesting, but it didn't really, he didn't really get it. Yeah. It was like, why do you have to vape, have fucking, you know, music on 14, have a five shot latte. Like, I don't understand. And be playing like Russell, like why? He called it the yearning. He didn't understand the addiction. He was like, oh my Christ. You're just like, you know, this big empty hole. And that's what, I, and that's why I took some time to really, be able to be okay being myself and by myself. That is sobriety, like being able to learn, right, yeah. li- live in your own skin and not, and not look for that rush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And not look outside of myself to feel okay. And so it's like, so then, you know, if a guy comes along, it's like, cool, that'll be a nice addition. It's not you're not going to be the center of my whole life. And so if you walk away, I'm not going to have nothing, which is what I've done before, just full love addiction bullshit. And it's like, I have, you know, my career, I have my cat, I have my friends, I have my fucking sober family, I have my fucking recovery, you know what I mean? I have my own shit going on. And, um, you know, and, and I'm a, a full person, complete person on my own. But what do you think about anonymity? I could talk to you all day, by the way, but I'm not going to oh, keep God. you. Oh, God. Well, you like, know what I think about anonymity. <laughs> well, for my, my thing is... And there's all these attractive people who aren't allowed to tell you why they've become attractive and you're sitting there and you can't figure out how to stop drinking. I, I, I love being out there. I think it, I think it's, uh, when, I think it's the, yeah. yeah. Well, I, okay. First of all, when, when AA first started, they were anonymous because they, they were too small to handle the amount of like requests that they would get. So that was one of it. What do you Number mean? Two, it was, 
like they were too small that everyone would like send in things and like needed help. That was what I heard. Okay. That they were anonymous because they just couldn't handle the, the, the deluge of, 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 of people that need help. It was also the 30s. It was a completely different time. I mean, being a drunkard was the fucking worst thing that you could fucking be. It was very stigmatized and all of that kind of stuff. I understand, you know, I just, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an AA history person. Like, I don't, yeah. I'm not a big book thumper. That's just not my jam. And I don't think I explained that that well. But um, I, it, it, we're, we're in a totally different time where we've got Sober House, Intervention, yeah. uh, fucking, you Celebrity know, Rehab. Uh, doc, yeah, Celebrity Rehab. Like, all this shit, you know what I mean? And all these programs and you know, people coming out. And I think that it's a different thing. And I think the only way to break the stigma is to be open about it. I don't understand how you break stigma by being secretive about it. It's not the skull and bone society, man. Yeah. And how can it be a thing of attraction and, uh, and not promotion if no one knows you're fucking in it? I just don't get it, man. And it's like, I get it. And a big thing is people think, well, if you say you're an AA and you relapse and it makes AA look like it doesn't work. It's like, well, guess what? It doesn't work for everybody. It has like a 5% success rate. Well, and what do you say about, I, I jack your line, if somebody has chemotherapy or somebody has yeah, cancer. Yeah, there you go, exactly. It, right, if you have fucking cancer, you get chemotherapy and they still die, do you think chemotherapy doesn't work? No. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, so, I mean, I, a girl read my book and she goes, hey, always creep me out. It would seem like a Christian cult, but you seem cool and you made it seem cool. Can I meet you at a meeting? And she, and she met me at a meeting. So, but there were people who refused to, I won't say who they are, famous people who refused to blurb the book because I broke anonymity. Oh, wow. And I was like, well, fuck you, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay. So, I mean, I think that recovering, there's a whole movement now about recovering out loud. And there's, I think that if you got sober, you know, if you've been sober a long, long time, people say, well, you know, uh, they'll just say I'm in recovery. They don't, they won't say AA or they'll say I'm in a 12 step program, but it's like, if you say you're in a 12 step, everyone knows what you're talking about anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So what does it matter? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. Is being a drug addict or drug user now about like the worst thing in the world? Is it really like, I don't know. I mean, I'm proud of it. I, I overcame this is the hardest thing I ever did. I'm so proud of my fucking sobriety. It was so fucking hard. Every goddamn time I tried it and people are dying. I don't think it's a time for fucking secrecy. I think it's a time for fucking parades and ribbons. And we should have a thing at the CVS where it says, you want to donate to fucking recovery? Fuck yeah, I do. I'll give a dollar. You know what I mean? Like, I think that we need to be like, have like a pride parade, man. I mean, it's hard. Yeah, it's so hard. And I, I, you know, for me, I, when I started my podcast, you know, I told you I'm a, I'm a news anchor. So here I am, this middle of the road guy. I went to the, I went to the general manager of our, you know, of our station and he, we, you know, is employed by our parent company. And he was like, do it, dude. He was like, I couldn't That's believe so it. Great. Yeah, I was so moved. And he was like, I want you. And I was like, well, I'm just going to talk to people and I won't really talk about my story. He goes, tell your story. He's like, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Oh my God. That makes me want to cry. But everyone knows someone who's touched by addiction. Why aren't we talking about it? Yeah. It's like mental illness. It's like, it's never, ever, the stigma will never be shattered. I, I, and I said this, I said, we will never break the stigma of addiction until we break the stigma of recovery ever. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, you know, I don't know. I've gotten criticized for it. I mean, when my book came out, it was junky because 
Like people are like, that's not the right language. It's substance use disorder. And I'm like, I've never heard one goddamn person ever say, hi, I'm Amy. I have substance use disorder. I understand that that's better for a doctor or for like a fucking insurance thing. But like, is that really, that's not, I get to tell my story the way that I want to tell my story. And I was a fucking junkie. Yeah. I mean, you were using crystal meth. You were shooting coke. Yeah. And it's like, honestly, I feel like, why don't we take back the words that have been used against us? You know, that's what the gay community and the black community have done. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily like when like someone called me a crazy crackhead bitch once and I was like, nope. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't like that. And I karate chopped him, but I was also on a flexor. Um, <laughs> that didn't agree with me. But, um, you know, I get to call myself, if it makes me feel more empowered to say I'm a fucking drunk and a junkie, it's my, or an addict and alcoholic, and it's not to remind me of where I come from. I will never forget. It was 20 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have fucking scars. I will never forget. I have epilepsy. Like, I, it, you know, but it's like, I, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It made me into the person I am today who I really like. Who's helping who people. Who wrote a really cool book. Who's helping people. So fucking thank God I was a fucking junkie and a fucking, you know, alcoholic. Yay. You know, you're open about, again, you're not unique, struggling with mental health. Like, did part of that, I guess, clear up when you got, when you got sober? No. No. So you get that so... That proceeded, that proceeded, and that's something else I'm going to talk about in the book. If you're, if you have fucking mental illness, you know, before, you're going to still have mental illness and sobriety. You'll have better tools, but you know, it's, you know... And that's why they have doctors that, yeah, exactly. I still have, I still have fucking depression. I'm on fucking meds. You know, it's like I was part of the reason I used was because of my depression. And so, you know, that's still something I struggle with. And that's going to be with me my whole fucking life. I, you know, I never break down at 19. I've been in the cycle four times. I've split my wrist, you know, I fucking overdose on pills. I've tried to kill myself a bunch of times. You know, now in sobriety, I have tools to fucking manage my feelings, which I didn't before. And certainly the drugs and alcohol didn't help. It made me really impulsive and do dumb shit. But, you know, I don't, I mean, I think the comorbidity of mental illness with addiction is like 80%. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's like, you're not unique in that and alone. And like, I mean, I, you know, but if you don't get a hold of your mental health, especially if you're like bipolar or depressed, your, or your anxiety, you're, you're going to have a much harder time staying sober. You've got to treat that. And that's why I'm not down with people being like, well, if you're on Prozac, you're not sober. It's like, suck a dick, man. That's not true. Yeah. Like, you know, read the book. You know what I mean? It's like, that's like saying to someone, like, don't take your insulin. You know, and I've seen a lot of people do that. Like, well, you know, you know, that's what happened to David Foster Wallace. He's bipolar or depressed and he, they, you know, he wanted to be really sober, man, you yeah, know, yeah. and be clean and, you know, and people, you know, he got off his meds and he fucking killed himself. And I've seen that in the room. Yeah. It's a different issue, man. It's a different fucking issue. What do you tell people that are, that, that are just having trouble, like clinging to a day? I say, you got to be connected. You have to have a partner. Like I, you know, quitting the jewel. I've got this girl. I don't even know her. We've been on Instagram. She read an article that I quit the jewel and I was like, Oh, I relapsed on the jewel. <laughs> she was like, Oh shit. And I, she was like, well, if you ever want to quit again, let me know. And I said, I'm ready to quit. And she goes, that's so weird. I just throw, I just thrown my, my, my vape out the window. Let's do it. And so we started together and every day we check in with each other. And that's the accountability. And, um, 
yeah, the accountability and not feeling alone. And someone else going, yeah, I feel crazy and I fucking have a headache and, oh, my God, I'm craving and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that the thing I would tell them is, yeah, I think, and support. Like, when you feel connected to other people and you don't feel alone, you know, your dopamine rises. You don't feel less than, your dopamine rises. And so connection is really important. And also learning that urges pass. It took me a really long time to learn that. Like, your urge is going to pass whether you use or not. Yeah. You know, just give yourself 20 minutes and distract. And then it's like, it's you know, in, over the eight and a half years, there have been times when I have absolutely not, well, I've wanted to use or drink. And I, and I have picked up the phone and said, I'm outside a fucking liquor store and I'm heartbroken and I, or I want to blow my brains like, oh, fuck this. And I allow myself to play the tape through. There is nothing that drinking and using isn't going to make worse in the long run. Like in the short term, it'll numb me out. But afterwards, I've got a fucking, you know, now I've got two problems. And you're creating those pathways, right? By exercising and calling people. So yeah, you know, once okay. you get, exactly. And once you get through an urge and you're like, oh my God, the feelings didn't kill me. And I, I, I had that urge and I really wanted to do it. And I felt like I had to do it and I didn't do it. You realize you can do that. And it strengthens that, you know? My, feel, you my feelings didn't time, kill me. You feel like, you know, yeah, if you feel like you're going to, if you cave every time you have an urge, then you feel like you don't realize that you can get through an urge. That's the same with the sex addiction, with nicotine, with with all of it, any of it. What's what is writing? What is writing? Sorry, what is writing? What has that done for you? Like that creative, like like to be able to still have those creative juices? Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to get sober. I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. You have to allow yourself to have it be shitty. You have to take out the editor. You have to write from a place. That's why people like to be creative when they're loaded because that that critic is off, you know, and you're fucking uninhibited. So you've got to just allow it to be shitty. And then you go in and you edit. So um, I had to teach myself that. And I did wrote a piece and I did research. And it's like, you know, a lot of times the most creative people we saw were like alcoholics and addicts. And so we think that the alcohol or the drugs made them creative, but it's, not necessarily true. How much, um, how much stuff can. did you have to take out of the book? Uh, I had to take a lot out legally. Okay. I yeah. had a legal team go through. Um, they cut a couple of like sex stories. They were like, we got it. You're a sex addict. You know what I mean? Like this, they want, they really want a narrative arc and it's really hard when you have 20 years of relapsing because fucking addiction's boring. And the relapse is boring. Like I got loaded and I got sober. And I got loaded and I got sober. And then I was gonna stick and then I got loaded again. And then I got sober again. And it's like a fucking it's grandma's day. So to make that into a narrative arc, which is what publishers want, was fucking hard. And that's why I guess it's nice to have an editor, right? You let them handle it and just kinda of turn it over. Yeah, I mean I fought for certain parts where I was like, No, 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 this has to be in the book and other parts I was like, Okay. I hear you, you know. Um, I mean, writing um, gives me perspective. And even when horrible shit is happening, I'm like, this is going to be great material. Which <laughs> yeah. is the same thing that, you know, I was, did when I was a comic. And it's like, you know, when, you know, when you're a writer or a comic, like everything's material. And so nothing's wasted. Even horrible shit is still material. And that, you know, and, and tragedy plus time equals comedy. You know, eventually it's funny. It's not well, funny in the moment, but it will be funny. And if you could see it as a story, you can back the fuck up from it a little bit and give yourself some perspective and not be so in it 
You know what I mean? Well, it's material. It's material with another alcoholic or addict that you can help them through with. I mean, well, that's, yeah, that's the other thing. I want other people to go. Oh my God, I thought I was. I mean, when I post stuff that I think is so personal and stupid and embarrassing, I'm shocked at the amount of people that are like, "Get the fuck out of my head!" Oh my God, what? Get your camera out of my house! Like, are you spying on me? Like, you know, we're really similar. We're all really similar. Well, you. I think that's the beauty. And you're the real deal. Like a couple, like a couple months ago or whatever, I, I, you know, I sent you a message about doing this. You got right back to me. Now you couldn't type because your hand was fucked up. So you, send, you see, <laughs> send me a my voice hand is memo. So fucked up. That surgery was not a good. That surgery did not go well. I what? don't know. I'm. It's not something's wrong with it. But what kind of surgery was it? Um, when I was helping my dad with, um, when he was having chemotherapy, I, I hit my hand and um, I hit it in the perfect way that created some type of horrible, horrible tendinosis where they went in and they, they opened up the sheath so the tendon could move more freely. So this was after two years of physical therapy and cortisone shots and nothing was working. It was like the last thing, yeah, surgery. okay. Yeah, and it didn't fucking work. I'm still in pain. So I've got to go back and see what's next. It's like, it's still, it sucks, you know, because it still hurts. I'll tell you what really sucks. How's your mom with dementia? My dad had dementia. It was, a, it was the oh, worst. Oh, so it's really, I mean, I think the hardest part is that some days she's really clear and other days she's really not clear and so you yeah. don't know what you're going to get and that if, if it was stable and you knew what you were getting each time that would be easier but there's times when she's like hey how's Colonel Puff up like how's your hand like completely on the ball and other times when she doesn't know what the fuck's going on and so having to kind of roll with it and um you know I'm basically just her caretaker now I mean she's in an assisted living but I I order her stuff we talk she can't really hear and she was a parent that wasn't really emotionally there for me. So in the beginning, it was very, very triggering. I bet. I was like, you know, and so, um, and then, you know, I leaned on my father and then my father got cancer. And I was like, well, fuck, you know, like, can I have one parent? Like, holy shit, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but my dad miraculously is in remission at 84. Jesus. That's, and he was a screenwriter. Yeah. yeah. He edits my stuff. He's, He's sharp as a tack, man. He's, it's crazy. Yeah, he, they were six weeks away from fucking dying when he started chemo. And I was the one who figured out he had cancer. That's going to be in the book. How? How'd you figure, well, how'd you like figure it out? Because I'm not, because I'm a fucking drug addict, <laughs> you know? I mean, like, well, I don't know. I just got a fucking intuitive hit. He was losing a lot of weight, and he was living, he's living in Ashland, and his osteopath is like, you just need to eat more red meat. And I'm like, he's 82. He's so tired. He's so depressed. He's losing tons of weight. And he said, well, I'm just really depressed. And so I know every single drug, you know, psych drug. And so I sort of guided him through what psych drugs to start. And none of them worked. And then I got him on Adderall because as you get older, you really lose dopamine. And so I had his doctor put him on Adderall and doubled the Adderall and he felt nothing nothing changed. Oh, wow. And that's when I got like a weird download from the universe. And I went, you have cancer. And he goes, what? And I said, I'm telling you, I'm your daughter and you have fucking cancer <laughs> and you need to get, go, go get blood tests immediately. You have fucking cancer. And I was, I, it was the most sure I'd ever felt. And he was like, I don't think he believed me, but I was right. I hadn't seen him in two years. It was just the sense. My dad is my person. Yeah. My dad is my hero. 
and I just got a fucking gut feeling. And also, like, I just, you know, and I said, if that, if you die, that doctor's going to have a slip and fall accident. Like, I'm going to take a fucking nine iron to that guy's <laughs> kneecap. Like, I swear to God. He's like, calm down, Ames, calm down, you know. And when he got to the oncologist, the oncologist goes, your daughter's right. You have fucking cancer. And if you don't start chemo, you're going to be dead in six weeks. Wow. And that's the universe talking to you. Oh, two more things. One, when timeline, I know it's hard to say timeline on the book, like any idea or what? what, what? Uh, I mean, it's working on the proposal, which is the hardest part. You know, mm. it's like, if you want to be with the publisher, you have to do the proposal, which is the entire outline, you know, your platform, why you wrote the book, you know, a comparative analysis with books that are similar and why yours is better or different. Uh, you know, the first couple of chapters, your platform, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's really hard. A lot of people go self-publishing because they don't want to write a fucking, it's harder than writing the book. Yeah. So um, I'm almost done with the outline and then I'm going to send it to my agent. And so, you know, then we got to sell the motherfucker and then, you know, it takes about, I don't know, like usually a year for everything to go to press and stuff like that but um i feel excited i mean i earned out my advance on my first book and only like 10 percent of authors ever fucking do that you wait what did you say you i earned out the advance oh, on wow. my first book okay and only like 10 percent of authors ever do that i mean i it took four and a half years yeah you know but because and i just flogged and flogged and flogged and flogged it and it got really popular during the epidemic i mean it's a slow burn that's the thing about you know books and book writing and all and building a platform it's a fucking it's just like sobriety it's a marathon it's not a sprint you have to stay at it you have to yeah it wasn't released onto the new york times bestseller list or anything like that you know what i mean it took like four and a half years for people to fucking for it to make its way into rehab for people to fucking like it it was word of mouth yeah joe shrank my podcast host from rehab confidential said about our podcast he goes it's gonna be like the fabergé commercial i'm like i'm sorry and goes (laughs) And, and they told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. He goes, pure wheat, germ oil and honey. I'm like, okay. It's true. Right. It's true. It is, it is true. It yeah. is, that's the way things grow is word of mouth. That's the most, that's better than I was in L magazine. Didn't do shit. I was on the doctors. Didn't do shit. You know, what's done the most word of fucking mouth. Yeah. And, and you'll get people drop in and send you notes and you're like, wow, this person was, you know, whether it's a personal friend or somebody you didn't know. And it's like, okay, those, those things. And you, you keep after it. You've had that on, on grand stages. Uh, The thing I can control the most is the second book. And that's what's going to help me sort of process what's happened in the last couple of years and make sense of it all. And I think this book is needed. I don't think it's, there's I think people need to know they're not doing it wrong. Well, and I'm like you said, people people are asking for it. I mean, people are asking you when you yeah, start to get Yeah, everyone is like, where's the second one? Yeah. And it's like, you know, it has to be a sequel without being a sequel. That's what my agent said. My is like, you can't mention My Fair Junkie. I'm like, what is this, a fight club? Because like, that's my one rule. And it's like, because, you know, I'm not James Patterson. So sequels don't sell well unless you're like a huge person. So it has to like be a sequel for the people who read the first book, but be independently standing for the people who haven't. Okay. So that's been, it's been sort of uh challenging can you mention the have you do you mention the first book at all or no i mean absolutely not in the proposal i do but not in the book okay do you know what the book's going to be called yet i don't i don't i had a name and then when he said that then i was like oh you just fucked my name up so now you know he said the title's the last thing don't worry and i was like oh okay 
Well, no, look, I'm very obedient to my 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 agent. You Even sound like you're te- you sound very teachable, like a sober. Yeah. A very, very, yeah. I'm very. He's just like you know. I go well. This person's book covers a lot of the same thing. Should I be worried? He goes, it's in the telling, and you tell so well. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, okay. I like, love no. This. I'm very, very, very teachable, and I you know I don't because I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like how you try. I don't like how, but you you know you tell a story. You tr- you tried to take your life with with meds, and your sponsor made you start your date over because it was more than the pers- <laughs> it was more than the prescription. Oh, still pissed. There's a lot of people that oh yeah that still think that was a psych incident and don't think that's true and yeah you know whatever. But you know, that's, but that's what your sponsor that was, said. That, so you said you know that was my sponsor at the time. Yeah. And so I did what she said. You yeah. know, and uh, whatever. You know, it's fine. She's right. I took them all. I didn't take them as prescribed. I took all of them. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to get high. I was trying to die. <laughs> and I didn't even do that right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I really shouldn't be here. I'm incredibly grateful to be here. And I really feel like, you know, the biggest gift I can is to, you know, show people that you're fucking resilient, man. And we're, you know, you're unbreakable. And to be, don't be ashamed. Be yourself and be proud and fucking dust yourself off and keep going. And, you know, that your quirks and, you know, stuff make you interesting and you're not alone. Like, I'm like, I collect hospital socks. People are like, and then a bunch of people fucking got, you know, and I was like, how come I can't get a boyfriend? People are like, because you collect hospital socks, bitch. You know, but it was like, and then everyone was like, I do too. I have a, just a new yellow pair. And like, it was like, it opened up this hilarious thread. And it's like, you know, I don't know. Who cares about looking good? It's too much energy, man. Yeah, especially. And I don't, when I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. I just know how to tell the fucking truth. That's it. That's all. I. That's like you know what was what was wrong about me for so long and inappropriate. Ironically, became your gift. The, my gift. Yeah. Which is so weird, and that's I think true for a lot of people. The thing that they are ashamed of, and they're like, well, "Why aren't I like other people?" And I wish I wasn't so this or so that. That's actually your fucking gift. And you're you're a great story for people. You know, maybe there's somebody listening to this that can't get it, that's relapsed for for 20 years. And like here you are, you know, eight and a half years sober, really saving people, saving lives. I mean, you know what I mean by that. Like, but through your book and through your vulnerability, I mean, it's people need hope. They need to fucking know. I mean, my book is dedicated to anyone who thinks it's too late. Yeah. Because I just it's never fucking too late. You know, and and when you relapse so many times. You just get the message like, I am never going to get it. I'm going to die a fucking junkie. Like, I'm not going to get it. I'm Something is broken with me, and I'm never, ever going to get it. And I'm here to tell those people that is not true. That's just not true. And I thought I was one of those people, and I had something happen, and I had a fucking shift. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, and everything changed. And I had been sober for periods. You know, and also I feel like addiction is kind of like cancer. Like, hey man, if you've had a couple of years together and then it comes back, it's like that's that's okay. Yeah, you it's know? part of the it's not process. A competition, man. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not. It's like you know, I know people in nineteen years who've eaten shit. So it's like it's really important that we all stay humble, and it's not a fucking competition. And time doesn't equal fucking recovery. And it's like I don't know. It's a it's a chronic illness that you have to manage. And like, like depression, like cancer, like, you know, and it's like, if it comes back, it comes back and you fucking get it back in its box again and you try again, you know, I don't know. My favorite thing is like what, what my whole thing taught me, especially losing everything was that, um, Will Rogers quote, which is the worst thing that happens to you 
can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you. Yeah. And that was, it's still hard for me to get that. It's like, it's not what happens to you. It's how you fucking react. And can this be a blessing? And that's with everything. And that's why it's a daily reprieve. Exactly. Exactly. All right. On that note, I'm going to let you go. I've kept you for an hour and 12 minutes. And, and, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh my God. It's my pleasure. You're a fucking joy, man. This was a blast. Yeah. Um, and so where can people find you on Instagram and stuff? I mean, I follow you. Just Amy Amy Dresner. I'm everywhere. Amy Dresner, Instagram, Amy Dresner, Twitter, Amy Dresner, Facebook, uh, rehab confidential on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Twitter and Facebook. I think it's rehab confident on Twitter. Um, I have a website, amydresner.com. We have a website, rehab-confidential.com. Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. All right. We'll link all this stuff to the pod. Amy, I can't, I can't thank you enough. I know, I know it's what you do. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me. And thank you for understanding my, my cat. My catastrophe, <laughs> get it? Oh gosh, it's a bad pun. So bad. Pardon that. I'm so sorry. That was horrible. It was awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts. You can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.